from the heart of Dubai, where tomorrow is being built today to the world. Welcome to the CTO Show with Mehmet. Here, we redefine technology and reimagine possibilities. With Mehmet, delve into the riveting realms of AI, cybersecurity, and digital technology. Experience the thrilling highs and lows of startups. Immerse yourself in the spirit of entrepreneurship and witness the future of business innovation being written in real time. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and explore the future. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the CTO Show with Mehmet. My name is Mehmet and as we know in each episode I discuss about different topics related to technology of course from cybersecurity, digital transformation, emerging tech and I like also to have a merge between business and tech and this is why I have sometimes with me CEOs, subject matter experts in topics related also to technology and today I'm very pleased to have with me Shashank Tiwari, who's the co-founder, CEO of Uno.ai. Shashank, thank you very much. You're joining me in a little bit late time for you in the Silicon Valley. Thank you to be here today. Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and about uh, Uno.ai? Absolutely. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on your show. You know, I've really enjoyed listening to your show and, uh, you know, it's just been an absolute pleasure, uh, uh, you know, watching you have those organic, meaningful conversations. So, you know, thank you for inviting me to the show. I really appreciate it. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's get started. As you said, you know, a little bit of my background, who I am, um, what's my story, and what are we doing with Uno AI? And then, of course, you know, I'd love to see uh, how you are viewing this world as well, right? We will we'll hopefully enjoy a nice conversation here. Uh, so in terms of background, Mehmet, I am, uh, you know, 20 plus years in the industry. As I like to say, I've almost had two careers uh, in this, you know, 20, 25 years that I've been working. Uh, my early career was on Wall Street. I spent a lot of time, you know, building sort of algorithmic systems, mathematician by training, kind of lost my way there. Um, was lucky enough to work with some incredibly smart people, build some very interesting systems in you know, the usual suspect places. Goldman, Merrill, Bank of America Securities, that kind of world. Uh, and then, you know, around 2009-10 is when I moved to Silicon Valley, and now it's been about 15 years or so, and been immersed in the world of startups, right? And in the in the last sort of this uh, decade plus, um, as it happens in Silicon Valley, sometimes you also have to be, uh, you know, lucky and be in the right place at the right time. And I certainly right. attribute some of my own learning, some of my own success to that. You know, I've been lucky to be on multiple journeys. Super early on at this company called Nutanix, you know, then I went on and ran engineering at a company called Elementum, uh, was, uh, you know, in Medallia when they were really, you know, growing at a very rapid pace and, you know, transitioning from a small company to a large company, getting ready for IPO. Uh, moved on, ran Eng at uh, Stackrocks, you know, and then now I am with my own interesting startup called Uno AI. Now, as it happens in startup land, you know, of course, when you're part of the startup world, you also end up advising and investing and, you know, kind of being part of the ecosystem. And I've, you know, I've kind of played my part there as well, right? And of course, you know, learned in the process and contributed back, hopefully. Um, now, in many of these startups, as I said, you know, there's luck, which plays an important aspect, you know, and I've seen that play out for me, at least, which, you know, I'm very thankful and grateful for. One in terms of, of course, you know, very smart people that you get to work with, that you learn from, 
mm-hmm. but also that some of them actually became very rewarding and you know saw the light of the day right like there were companies like uh, Nutanix that went public Medallia went public uh, Stackrox was acquired by Red Hat so you know those are again in the life of a startup interesting and important milestones not an end in itself but you know interesting milestones when it is time you know a good time to kind of celebrate to reflect you know enjoy the uh, kind of fruits of your labor if you may uh, in other cases, sometimes the learning itself is is a huge reward, right? And I've had those also as a part of my fair share, right? Where you don't necessarily have a monetary outcome or, you know, the outcome right. that you set out for in the beginning, but, you know, there's immense amounts of learning, immense amounts of growth, right? So I'll certainly, you know, if you get a chance, I'll touch upon that. You know, that's certainly been my story as well. Um, Unui, I started late uh, 2021, fall of 2021. We are about 18 months old uh, as a company. Uh, we've grown very rapidly. You know, I was very lucky to uh, be joined in this particular startup with some very smart people. My, you know, co-founder as an example is also a man who's highly respected, you know, with great credentials. You know, he's uh, someone who was part of the early Silicon Valley's, the whole sort of event-driven real-time system story. He was a core engineer at this company called Tipco. Um, mm-hmm. We crossed paths, uh, you know, at back at Elementum, where I was running ends. He was one of the main architects out there. We worked very closely. We formed a very close, you know, sort of rhythm. Of course, I learned a lot from him back then as well. You know, then he moved on and he built a lot of the core systems at this company called Plume, which Mm -hmm. uh, is another very interesting play because they have taken a completely radically different approach towards, uh, you know, bandwidth and Wi-Fi optimization using ML and, you know, fine-tuning using algorithms rather than necessarily networks. And, uh, you know, Muru, that's his name. You know, he was a key part of the story there. And then we got together fall of 2021 and, you know, got started with Uno AI. Our thesis at Uno AI, and of course, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll dig in a little deeper there and we'll tell sure. you more about, you know, the product, the thesis, the problem. But in a nutshell, uh, we are essentially at this leading edge of applying AI, if you may, to cyber. We are not trying to do any more of this detection and, you know, sort of pattern matching or, you know, uh, trend extraction, which has been the last generation of ML usage. But we're really getting deeper into this area of root cause analysis, right? We are getting deeper into decision making uh, with the quest that, you know, if we are able to reach our North Star, our milestone, we would have built an analyst, a security analyst itself, not a tool for one, right? Like a thinking machine, uh, something that um, can actually do the heavy lifting that humans have to do today in the world of cyber, right? So that's the aspiration. That's the goal. Uh, today, we manifest more like a co-pilot. I think that's the jargon that has, you know, uh, caught some momentum and increasingly being used in the world of AI. And our ambition is to go towards complete autopilot future, right? The co-pilot kind of paving way towards that, uh, you know, the smart machine that could actually do most of the work that humans do, not just be an assist, right? So so that's the ambition at Uno. Very ambitious company, still a small company, you know, 10 people company, incredibly mm-hmm. smart engineers on board. We just did a GA, 1.0 GA, and we celebrated it after, you know, uh, blood, sweat, and tears over the last 18 months in getting to this point. And yeah. as I say, the journey has barely begun, right? Like, it is still like the first mile marker of a very long marathon run. But plenty to run, plenty plenty to go. So, so you know, that that's my background and the Uno AI story. That's uh, great. And congratulations on, on the launch. I know like, um, you know, how, how it feels being myself. I, I didn't, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to be part of a founding team, but, you know, I know the, uh, the you know, I spoke to a lot of CEOs and, you know, like that first moment when you have your product in front of, of people. Now, 
what's interesting in in you know your whole career and you know what you are doing now with uh, Uno uh, Shashank is you are merging two really um, important technologies like cybersecurity and AI at the same time. Now, the first thing I want to ask you, uh, and this question, by the way, like I'm repeating it maybe, but I like to have different, uh, I would say, opinions first. And second, the more you ask the people, the more you get some insights. So some people say that cybersecurity and uh, our common friend, Tom, he mentioned that on, on the episode, it's kind of a crowded market and saturated market. Now, from a founder perspective, and you have this ambition, how you make sure that with the product that you are coming up with in cybersecurity can really, you know, get the chance to, to be in the top, let's say, 10, 20 among all the other startups that are you know, appearing every day, I would say. Absolutely. Fantastic question. Fantastic question. Very relevant question. And, you know, something I'm sure every cybersecurity founder, buyer, community member thinks about all day long. Um, the reality is, you know, as you rightly mentioned, uh, the, the space of cybersecurity is kind of in a state of dichotomy, right? And on one side, you have the segment which is rapidly evolving. There is very large demand for it and the demand keeps growing. So certainly, you know, there is one aspect of that, you know, one side of the puzzle. But on the other side, as you rightly said, there are there are hundreds, in fact, thousands of companies uh, that have, you know, sprung up over the last, I would say, primarily five, seven years mm -hmm. uh, that have, you know, stepped in to kind of satisfy this demand, right? And in fact, in the springing up of these 5,000 plus companies, you know, and many more that perhaps you and I both, you know, haven't heard of, uh, but, you know, we'll eventually learn about, which are perhaps, you know, getting built out somewhere or, you know, in the making. Um, what is really happening is that they are going very uh, deep into one aspect of cyber, right? Like there's a specialization and the kind of, you know, point solution approach has really been the driving factor for emergence of so many companies, right? Um, part of that is, of course, informed by the fact that, uh, you know, everyone has a new fresh take at how to solve the good old problem, right? Of, uh, you know, essentially understanding, defending, and being on top of your cybersecurity posture. And then, of course, part of it is also uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the industry and you know, especially our thought leaders like Gartner's and others have been creating a lot of this, you know, I would call it uh, structure around the industry. Um, mm -hmm. In some sense, encouraging and inspiring people to go and find their home, right? So they are trying to bucket themselves or fill themselves in a particular quadrant or a particular definition and then build a product around it, right? So I think uh, a mixture of all of these have certainly created you know, a lot of companies, a lot of companies that look very similar, sound very similar, um, and they're all trying to knock the doors of the same buyer, right? They're all trying to go get their attention and, uh, you know, essentially sort of uh, be the tool, right? And so definitely, I think the point you made is absolutely correct. It's noisy, it's difficult to break through, it's difficult to really stand out in that crowd, right? Now, our thesis, uh, you know, it was slightly different. Now, not to say that's guaranteed, guaranteeing our success, but we do feel very encouraged, right, with the early success is that we flipped the story. Instead of trying to build a product, you know, and then try and sell it to our customers, we said, well, let's speak to as many customers as we can, mm -hmm. even before we've written one line of code, right? And uh, truly with the intention of trying to find that white space, trying to find the gap of, you know, what is it that, despite the fact that you have 5,000 tools, is still missing, right? And 
uh, when we went down that, you know, sort of rabbit hole, if you may, right, talking to experts and CISOs and people in the field and security operators, the one sort of common theme that emerged is that I don't think there is a dearth of tools. There are already too many tools. Mm -hmm. In fact, probably the, you know, there are, there are way more tools than you can gainfully use. Um, what is the real problem is honestly skill gap, right? And when I say skill gap, I mean more from a standpoint was you've got the security professionals. You know, they are, of course, struggling and being challenged to stay abreast with all, you know, sort of rapidly evolving attack surfaces, you know, types of attacks. So that's happening at one level. But also at the other level, you have a diversity of people who really, you know, sort of work in the cybersecurity realm, right? You've got people coming from compliance background and audit background and, right. you know, who are security engineers and researchers and some just, you know, kind of program managers, if you may. And not everybody is able to see the world the same way or is able to bring in, you know, the deep technical expertise, the deep understanding of just about everything else, uh, you know, that is out there in the stack, right? So they're essentially struggling to simply be on top of the game, right? There is, there's definitely a very clear sort of, you know, skill gap and a need there in the market. And even worse than that, the, the other problem is that if you start parsing that even further, you will realize that um, the skill gap will only get worse. And why it will get worse is because the underlying technology, the types of applications, the data flows, the complexities is not stopping. It's not like, hey, we did cloud migrations and now, you know, all yeah. our, you know, evolution is done, right? In, in fact, it's the beginning, right? And so the architectural types, types of technologies, everything else that the security team is tasked to protect is also changing on a daily basis, right? So, mm -hmm. so anyway, so for us, I think, you know, long story short, what we converged on is that if we are able to somehow meaningfully solve the skill gap problem, right? And in a way that it provides tangible business value to the end companies, because at the end of the day, these end companies are businesses, you know, and they've got to optimize towards their own shareholders, towards their own growth. If we're able to do that in some way, I think that's where we could perhaps get love, perhaps get attention, right? And, and a chance to succeed. Uh, so that has been very much in the DNA of the company, right? Like we're a very customer focused company and even when we went down this ambitious path, we said, what can we build today? And how should we progress our product so that we can start solving problems today, right? And we can mm -hmm. start really solving problems today from a standpoint of exactly what I mentioned, right? Like, let's go bridge this skill gap today to the extent we can. Let's go make the teams more efficient with the tools they have instead of they going and buying yet another tool. Uh, let's go and try and give them more bang for the buck, right? Like, basically increase their productivity and help them in some sense, you know, do more with less, right? And so uh, the entire packaging, the way we have been approaching this is like, hey, we are not yet another tool. In fact, we are not the 5,000 first tool at all. Uh, mm -hmm. We are a security analyst, right? And so make Uno a member of your team. Think of it as that instead of hiring five more team members, right, or spending immense amounts of dollars trying to, you know, get your current team to perform, uh, you know, faster, better, uh, more effectively, more efficiently, well, get Uno onto your team, right? This is your expert system. This is your security analyst that will do a lot of the heavy lifting and also help the rest of the team grow and prosper, right? Like help them thrive, help them become more effective, help them become more efficient. So that's really our sort of value prop out here. Um, mm -hmm. Again, like I mentioned, it's still early, right? Uh, so we'll see how that pans out, but it's been very encouraging because, you know, this really falls into the years that is very receptive to this type of... Uh, you know, sort of understanding of the problem and bringing something that really solves the problem as opposed to yet another cool, shiny tool, uh, you know, that is sold using a mechanism which says, hey, you need this and this is why you need this. Right? Like we don't need too much of convincing of 
why you need Uno, but we need to focus more on does Uno really solve the promise that we are saying it does, right? So, so the storyline kind of flips a little bit there. I, I love this, Shashank, because uh, being on this show now for a couple of months, and I had a lot of uh, people who are experts in cybersecurity, every single time I ask, okay, what are the biggest challenges other than the attacks and phishing? So the answer that was always coming is short uh, a skill a skill shortage, right? So, and this is where I think you you are adding the value. The other thing that I honestly, and um, you know, maybe by now everyone who follow the show knows that I give immediate, honest uh, feedback. I loved your approach because you are not saying, "Hey, like you you are not like uh, you know getting on a bandwagon and say, "Hey, like I have this, uh, I don't know, uh, you know this." fancy words so i love this approach honestly because you are starting from uh, solving a real customer pain or real customer problem which is the lack of skills out there and then what i understood now from you is that your solution provides kind of an augmentation um, of that existing uh, cybersecurity skills right so this is very good now you mentioned that the the problem will become more worse with the future. So, because everyone talks about the shortage in skills uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, and even you know, I had a guest, uh, and and he was saying that there was a study in the U.S. that CISOs they even don't last more than two years, right, in in their position. Correct. Now. With the rise of AI, do you think that AI can slowly and by adopting solutions like what you are doing now with Uno, can slowly try to fill these gaps within within the cybersecurity department of, of the enterprises and to how far we can really rely on AI to take care of our security posture. Yeah, so fantastic question again um, out there, Mehmet. I think I would break this into two parts, right? Sure. And the reason I break this is one is a very cybersecurity specific way of thinking, right? Because we suffer with some problems which is unique to our industry in a way, right? And we can delve a little bit deeper into it and I'll give my two cents into the mix. Uh, and then the second part, which I think is equally important is what kind of roles or what kind of jobs can we expect AI to really do in the times to come, right? Which will also, of course, apply back into the realm of cyber, right? As much as it might apply uh, to other kinds of jobs as well, right? Like accounting or business analysis or, you know, whatever else, software development or sales or, you know, what have you, right? Um, so I think, like, if you start looking at cybersecurity per se, right, and you already kind of said it, I think the skill gap is a, is a multi-level problem, right? Like, so if you sparse it, at one level, you don't have enough of very trained, very smart analysts, researchers, security professionals who are required there at the operational level, right, to run programs to make it successful, right? So there is a, there is a dearth of enough smart people there. And the, the, the few that are out there are already well-employed and, in fact, in huge demand, right? So it's not like you could just multiply them. Um, that gap, I think, the, the method that we are looking at right now and the rest of industry is also kind of beginning to think in that direction in terms of some form of value-added augmentation, right, like a co-pilot certainly starts easing that pain out right? Where you can start saying, hey, I could have a newbie or a lesser trained person. And this particular person could also act like a trained analyst with the help of 
AI with the help of tooling, with the help of, you know, the appropriate amount of data and training and so on and so forth, right? AI, of course, kind of bringing it all together. Uh, so that's one way of thinking about it. And there I certainly feel that the value creation and the value realization will keep going up the stack in the sense that it'll start with it being a, a small assist, right? Or a co-pilot, like what we have done, for example, today is, hey, you take five, seven days to do your searches and you know stitch everything together. Well, that's a small query, five minutes and you can do it in Uno, right? So that's already a substantial quantum jump. But then, you know, beyond that, when you start looking at also exploratory analysis, you start looking at, you know, thinking through, you know, the tribal knowledge that analysts have, but kind of baking that into an AI engine and then, you know, doing all the root cause analysis and decision making. Now you are kind of getting into that realm where you could say, hey, could this really replace certain types of roles completely, right? Like, could this end up, you know, essentially becoming the analyst, the true analyst, right? And uh, we certainly feel, you know, both in terms of thesis and my own understanding, uh, that certainly we are headed in that direction. Uh, you know, it would not be surprising at all uh, that that actually comes sooner rather than we all think in the sense that within the next three, five, eight years, we will start seeing that become more and more real and more in front of us, right? Now, of course, we'll start seeing inklings of it much sooner with co-pilot maturing. Maybe in two to three years, you would start seeing a lot of those very elementary L1, L2, you know, and especially entry-level L1 type roles all being eradicated and then, you know, kind of start walking up that stack, right? So that's definitely, yeah. I think, a logical progression we'll see. Now, in terms of the leadership roles, right, like if you start looking at uh, security managers, CISOs, thought leaders, I think that segment will also benefit from it. And why it will benefit from it is I think there are, there are two or three things I feel at a meta level, at a higher level, that mm -hmm. AI would uh, do very well for those roles as well. Firstly, a lot of those senior folks today are, are very bogged down by operational day-to-day -day tasks. They have no time, no bandwidth to really think strategically, right? They're always living in fear, in fact, in some cases, right? Like they don't want to be breached. They don't want to be attacked. They don't want to be in the news. So they're always living with the sense of, hey, do I have good posture? Do I have enough controls? You know, I hope I'm not the target for the next ransomware, right? Like, you know, they're, they're kind of struggling with that which is also part of the reason why many of these, you know, top leaders don't survive more than two years. I mean, they have immense pressure from the board. They have immense pressure from the other leaders, you know, and then sometimes they just crumble under that pressure. Sometimes, you know, unfortunately they get fired because not necessarily because of their own fault, but, you know, overall pressure, uh, they're not uh, able to, you know, deliver strategically that the rest of the leadership is expecting, right? And so I feel that with AI taking on a whole bunch of these sort of, you know, call them, difficult but uh, you know operational tasks yeah. free up mind space for a lot of these leaders right then they would be able to have better visibility they'd be able to start thinking more strategically you know and start planning things out more at a i would say level that is not uh, stuck in block and tackle on a day-to-day -day basis right so so that's how i think like cyber is going to get impacted i do think i think it'll have a humongous part to play right in yeah. in the whole cyber realm now, at large, though, just to kind of complete that puzzle, the second part that I kind of demarcated, right? I broke your question down into two parts. Sure. Bear with me there. Um, I do feel that I think AI at large is going to have a humongous impact. Now, I must mention this, you know, if you start looking at the online content today, right? Like if you go and just look up the social media or, you know, all the buzz and noise around AI becoming, you know, the intelligent machine and replacing mm -hmm. humans, I don't think, I don't believe, you know, being deep into this puzzle, having understood this quite closely for so many years, I don't think we are anywhere close to it, to be honest. 
right? And yeah. what I mean by that is that I don't think we have the fear of AI going rogue and, you know, destroying humans or, you know, I think there has been some parallels being drawn that could be as catastrophic as nuclear war or the pandemic. And, you know, we should put a stop on this AI evolution. There have been congressional hearings, you know, big leaders have been signing, uh, you know, referendums around it to say, hey, let's go and, you know, stop this. I think that is a little dramatized, to be honest, yeah. right? Like, I don't think we are anywhere close to that. Now, whether we will lead to that someday, it's possible, of course, you know, technology has been evolving and we don't know where that, you know, lead us 10 years, 15 years, 20 years out, right? And maybe that some of that will get accelerated. But having said that, I think that's a very far away picture. What is more yeah. real, though, is a lot of the tasks that we do today that involve less decision making, but a lot of effort, right? So I want to clearly kind of demarcate it like that. Lots of effort less decision-making. So it's not easy. You still have to go and, you know, comb data together. You have to combine it, right. create things. And then even some elements of creativity, I think those will certainly get replaced by AI, right? And that that impact will be across board. It'll impact writers. It'll impact, uh, you know, marketing folks. It's going to impact engineers. It's going to impact, uh, you know, the business development folks. It's going to impact cybersecurity folks. But that element we are just talking about, in some sense, you know, automating away and then adding away some of the things that are complex today. So simple workflow automation can't do it, but, you know, it can be replaced with, uh, you know, an AI engine that can do that heavy lifting and also put things together and generate stuff for you, right? Which we're already kind of seeing with a lot of generative AI. Uh, so I think that is certainly going to happen, right? And it's that that impact might be quite widespread. We'll start yeah. seeing that quite rapidly across industries. And, you know, that that itself might drive some fear. But I don't think we are going towards AI taking over humans anytime soon, right? Like, I, I, I doubt we are anyway close to it. Um, actually, I have repeated it on the show multiple times because, you know, every, I think every now and then I used to see these articles. Stream media, they are very good at this, in, in you know, throwing these very catchy, title so people just click and go there and then i repeated like guys like at the end of the day the ai generative ai specifically chat gpt and bard from google now they don't act by themselves they need someone to give them a prompt so they can act and you know like just to, make, to simplify it a little bit so something like uno.ai which is your own uh, company again it requires some input and it requires some human interaction to it so it can go and do what it's supposed to do so this is why, uh, on the long run, as you said, until we have a um, a machine that can think, you know, reasoning, uh, we will not have this. And honestly speaking, someone who started his career in a data center and you know, in, 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 behind a uh, uh, the keyboard and the screen, I wish I had ChatGPT at that time because it would save me a lot of times. I could focus on, for example, thinking, okay as a system admin or a security analyst, how I can contribute to my, you know, the current uh, uh, place I work in increasing number of, uh, I don't know, maybe customers or I can increase their revenue. Even if they are non-profit, how I can, you know, make these guys have more visibility in the market from IT perspective. So I have to agree with you, Shashank, 100%. Now, you mentioned a couple of things and I don't know how, to, I, I would try to make it into one question, but feel free if sure, you want sure. to break it down. Like you mentioned ransomware, right? And then we meant we touched base on the AI and we talked about the board. Just last week, I shared that also on an episode where there was an article saying, finally, CEOs are understanding 
the real threats of ransomware, right? Um, now we have AI. How long it would take until, you know, the board will understand, oh, hey, like we need to invest in AI-powered tools, not only for, you know, the use cases that we see on day-to-day -day basis, but also to, you know, make our security uh, defenses much stronger uh, by uh, getting the AI. Do you think we will have to wait long time until the board? Because what I hear till now, unfortunately, the board, they say, yeah, yeah, we know that there is a risk out there. Ransomware is the most, you know, famous one now, DDoS attacks and so on. They say, but you know what? Uh, okay. Uh, until we get it, we'll think about it. Do you think we will, we will have the same thing with the adopting AI? It's a good question. And I will, you know, give my two cents again. Uh, we don't know, right? We'll see the future unfold. So sure. we all learn together, right? When that happens. Um, but just, you know, having an understanding of the landscape and, uh, you know, having seen how company leadership and boards and, you know, CEOs have been uh, sort of adapting, right? And evolving over the years. Um, there, are, there are essentially three or four underlying factors that I think would be better to kind of uh, understand a bit more. And, you know, that might then, uh, I guess, allow us to project or allow us to guess, uh, you know, how soon the AI adoption could be at that level, right? Or how enthusiastic could they be about it? So I think the first way to think about this is, uh, you know, how uh, popular has a particular concept or a technology become uh, from a day-to-day -day life standpoint, right? So it's one thing to think of it from your corporate decision-making standpoint, then another where you know, it's become part of common life, right? And so if you uh, encounter that every day in your life, with your family, with your personal life, you know, with your friends, I have a feeling that it does impact your thinking, right? Whatever role you may be in, right? And which is why we saw um, this story play out uh, with, let's say, social media adoption, right? Like if you mm -hmm. go back 10 years, 15 years back, most enterprise CEOs would say, hey, we don't need to do any social media. You know, that is meant for consumer stuff, right? Like, especially enterprise uh, B2B-centric CEOs, right? Like they would just rule it out. Mm -hmm. um, very soon, what ended up happening was uh, all the influencers, all the real, you know, sort of uh, decisions were getting impacted by what people were picking up actually in social media, right? Conversations like this and podcasts, right? Things that were being discussed on Twitter, on Reddit, uh, you know, in individual blog posts, right? And so on and so forth, right? LinkedIn. So, you know, those venues which initially the CEOs kind of discounted soon became primary platform for them to engage with, right? And at multiple levels, you know, to engage with from a customer success standpoint, to engage with from an understanding of the market standpoint, to engage with from a messaging standpoint, to engage with from a standpoint of, uh, you know, also uh, driving influence, right? And so yeah. similarly, I feel like what has happened with AI is it's got some, uh, you know, interesting uh, tailwinds out here and you know some help from all the buzz that has been created because of chat gpt um, so you know um, to be just again upfront and honest i don't believe chat gpt is as awesome or as cool as it's uh, projected to be it is fantastic you know i don't mean to discount mm -hmm. all the great work that has been done the new language models llm is 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 outstanding for sure it's bringing together years of research with transformers and attention and other kinds of work that has happened in the world of ai and kind of packaged it beautifully so even a, you know, a layman, a common person could get their hands on it and, you know, enjoy the power of AI, right? Unlike uh, a lot of the previous ones, which were just restricted to researchers, you know, within company limits. 
Uh, and so I think that has made it common jargon. Now today, everybody from a student to a common person, no, you're even a non-tech person, has started talking about AI and you know, uh, chat GPT and language models and what have you, right? Like these words are becoming commonly used. So that right. I feel will definitely influence the CEOs, right? When their friends talk about it, when their families talk about it, when they see it in the newspapers, when they hear about it on TV, they feel like, well, what am I doing as a leader in my company, right? Like what am I doing in terms of AI? Um, right. So I think definitely that will help, you know, just broadly in terms of AI adoption. So that's one thing. Now, of course, when we get more specific in terms of cyber, will that translate to AI and cyber investment? I think that's the second part of the puzzle, right? Like the second part of the puzzle really is that so far, right, even till very recently, and even today for many companies, cyber is is kind of looked at in the same light that you would look at insurance, right? Or some kind of control. Exactly. Right, where the idea is I'm going to buy that because, well, I don't want to be, you know, uh, left out in the cold in case disaster strikes me. But the funny part is that most people assume that even if disaster strikes me, it's not going to be me, it's going to be someone else, right? So if you ask any CEO, um, you know, even if they're unaware of how good their security posture is, but you can say, hey, what do you think is your chances of being attacked by ransomware or, you know, you um, uh, kind of having a substantial loss because of a cyber attack? Um, I'm fairly confident from all my conversations over the years that they will probably discount it down. You know, most CEOs will say, well, I don't think the risk is that much, right? Mm -hmm. I think we've got a good team and we're on top of it and we have most things covered, right? And if you need to do more, we will look at it in the future, right? So the, as you rightly said, they will kind of punt it out, right? Like, yeah, we'll see when it happens. Um, now that, of course, is changing with every news that becomes more visible and very much on the face of these leaders, right? We're like when when the next competitor or the you know the neighboring large enterprise that you look up to, right? Like when they start getting attacked, when they start getting hacked, I think that's when the kind of you know the um, awareness about this uh, suddenly becomes a lot more, right? Because then you start worrying, you start feeling that it has hit close home. You know what I mean? Like now it starts yeah. getting a little personal. And like yeah, I know that company, and you know I know those people, and they were smart people, and they were hit. Well, maybe I could be hit as well, right? So. Now you start sort of, you know, empathizing a bit more with that problem space. And that has happened because, you know, we've been seeing that month on month, right? Like every month, every day, we start seeing more and more stories of different types of attacks, different types of losses. And then last but not the least, consequences have also increased, right? So, you know, if you start thinking about it, you know, a few years back, there would be hacks, attacks, you would put a little press release out, you would put a little apology out and, you know, job done, move on, right? You do the next thing. Uh, unfortunately, right? But what has translated now is the uh, the monetary loss, reputation loss, brand loss uh, has really amplified. It has just gone from it being a minor headache to a major problem, right? Like, you know, leaders yeah. have lost their jobs, companies have lost their statuses, their customers, and some have lost substantial amounts of money, you know, millions of dollars of fine and, you know, stuff like that. So I think that is going to really play a part as well in um, becoming more conscious, becoming more proactive about cyber. And, you know, some are already looking at it as almost a competitive advantage where they're saying like, hey, if I have a good cyber posture, right, overall good cyber control, it gives me the same advantage that I have if I have a fantastic, resilient, scalable infrastructure, right? Because why else do we put money, let's say, in a resilient, scalable infrastructure? Because you know, at the underlying motivation is that I'd be able to service more customers, I'd be able to keep them happy, you know, grow at my mm -hmm. pace and, you know, outsmart all the other competition, right? I'll be ahead of the game. And I think that 
some digital transformation leaders and some you know sort of forward looking ceos are beginning to think in that light right where they are saying hey if i also have a very strong cyber posture right i have a very strong central nervous system resilient infrastructure i think i would be able to do a lot more digital business which is really where most of the business is going as opposed to my competition as opposed to my industry and you know therefore i'll be you know the leader of the pack right so i think once these three different sentiments come through uh, one is you know ai becoming more sort of a common word you know it's already kind of happening cyber becoming less of an insurance and more of a you know important choice you know moving from a you know a, you know i i just need to have because i checked the box as opposed to consciously making that decision to have it and then third of course you know uh, leaders uh, making it as a part of investment just like you do with other kinds of resilient infrastructure and seeing the benefits of it right and then others kind of following so once these three things kind of come together i think yes the you know the cyber and ai emergence is you know definitely on the cards and i and i do think that it's it's sooner than we think i i agree with you uh, shashank because it's something that they cannot ignore anymore because as you said when they will start to see it going around them of course they will have to uh, you know say okay we need to adopt this so advice i would say if uh, you are a an executive listening to this take action or at least start to talk to your team as soon as possible before it's too late because what's happening in this space both in the cyber and in the ai and tech in general uh, maybe before if you miss two three years that's fine and then you can catch up but now if you miss a couple of weeks <laughs> you might be missing a huge opportunity now i want to shift gears a little bit um uh, if you don't mind and Shashank, like you've been you've been part of several high growth companies right and some of them they were like very big established companies and at the same time you work now you have your own startup and you were part of other startups like Nutanix and others. How do you compare, you know, the, the way you as a leader, you lead teams in, in startups versus leading teams in a established company? Oh, that's a fantastic question again. Um, I think they're two different worlds, right? So the way I like to think about it is that, um, and again, startup, I think, is a broadly used words, so I'm going to break it down even further, right? So there sure. are startups which are like barely getting started, you know, which I think in Silicon Valley jargon, we love to call it the zero to one journey, right? Thanks to yes. Yale's book, Zero to One, that has kind of, you know, even popularized it. Uh, so there's the beginning, at the very beginning, right? Like when you, when you go from a concept to a company, the zero to one stage, right? And then there are startups that are at that one phase so to speak but you know then they're scaling they become a proper enterprise right their journey for growth their journey towards becoming maybe a public company and you know becoming uh, further and farther there right and then of course the third part is well you're part of a larger company um i think that you know all these three if you may the zero to one the growing company and the larger company um, as a leader and also as a member i think your roles and your expectations are very different Right. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens is that when you are in a zero to one phase, you really uh, almost run like a sports team uh, to some level. I feel like, you know, that's the best analogy I can think of. Right. Like you need high performers. Uh, you need, you know, a bunch of high performers, a small team to kind of gel well. Teamwork is very important because, you know, one or two members not playing their part can just spoil the game. Right. It's a team sport. Um, and then the third part is you got to move fast, right? And improve and learn fast as a team, right? 
And then at the same time, sometimes you need generalists, right? You need people who can wear multiple hats, do more things. Uh, similarly, the same thing for a leader, right? Like as a leader, like what we end up, what I end up doing today, and I've seen other fantastic, you know, sort of zero to one CEOs do the same thing, or you know, me as a leader in zero to one other journeys as well, you know, attempt to do or at least target to do, is that where you want to lean on a nice smooth transition on a day to day basis between the player coach, if you may, right? You got to be the player, you got to do your things, you got to roll your sleeves up, right? Whether it means, uh, you know, being the first salesperson effectively, which I am kind of, you know, in some sense, that's what I've been doing, to even, you know, slinging code if it's required, to, you know, going and doing your regulatory compliance activity, to interviewing, to even, you know, negotiating on your lease, to what have you, right? Like what I'm saying is, every day's operational activity, there is the whole player model where you behave exactly like every other member of the team is doing, right? You build, you manage, you complete yeah. tasks. Um, so that's basically the part there, right? But at the same time, there's a second part of the puzzle, which is really, I would call more of a coach model. And, you know, I'm talking about a coach who's an inspirational coach, not a coach who is screaming from the sidelines, asking the players they're not playing well, right? So I feel like, you know, as a, as a leader, as a good yeah, as sort of a leader in the zero to one phase, I think the important part is to inspire your team, right? To to get them excited, uh, to remind them of the the North Star, right? From time to time, because it is extremely draining in an early stage startup. So people can be very consumed in what they're doing, and sometimes they tend to forget the larger picture. So pull them out of it, let them dream big, let them look at the larger picture, right? So you definitely have to play that card, and it's pretty much like playing a game. Right, and it's almost like every day is almost like playing one tiny game towards a big tournament, right? And you're the winning the tournament is the culmination of reaching that one phase, right? The zero to one is just a bunch of games that you play every game. Some you win, some you lose, but you know overall, if you come stronger, uh, you know you reach the one phase with confidence, right? So that's usually the zero to one journey, right? The classic early stage journey. Now, if you start going towards the the growth stage companies, as a leader especially, your task is now to begin to start setting some processes. You know, and I've also been, um, you know, lucky enough to be in those roles. You know, like I mentioned, with Medallia was a classic example of that. You know, there were about a 500 people company when I joined them. They ended up becoming a few thousand people. Revenues grew very rapidly. You know, about 50 plus or so million it was. You know, it ended up being 300 million. So you know, it was always like a super growth on all fronts. You know, on the revenue front, organization front. And there, I think the leadership expectations really were around setting processes to scale, right? Like the keyword being scale, right? Like what kind of incentives can you set? What kind of objective measures can you set? How can you empower other people? Uh, what organizational structure is right, you know, for the company to thrive? Uh, how repeatability can be done? What can be automated out? You know, what kind of talent needs to be brought in? Uh, and a lot of it obviously goes towards team building, right? So I think like that definitely becomes your primary priority. Now, with larger companies, uh, you know, again, it becomes interesting and complex. You know, some of this, of course, the growth phase activities continues through into larger companies because some larger companies also keep growing for, for lots of time, even after they become public and big, you know, which we have seen with so many of these Silicon Valley giants themselves, right? Yeah. And they have a similar sort of a flavor, but also there are other aspects with larger companies that come in, right? Like where... Um, there's also an aspect of stability. Now you have to start balancing between scaling, growing, and stability because you have a large customer base. Uh, you know, you have a reputation to keep, right? You've got a team that, uh, you know, may not be as inspired as they are when you are in a fast growing, you know, building something new phase, but you still need to keep them motivated. Uh, you sometimes, you know, obviously most of the times, in fact, you're now looking at 
uh, international offices and you know cross-border geographies and making sure that rhythm is managed, there's fairness in the company, um, you know that they, you are able to scale beyond uh, you know one location if you may or one product. And then you know I think a lot of it also ends up becoming in a way I would say is managing the aspirations and the politics that does creep up in those large organizations, right? Like you have to kind of uh, have to figure that out, right? And I'm not even saying that in a negative way, don't get me wrong mm -hmm. here. I mean, there are some places which become very toxic and difficult to manage, but even in the best um, run places, which are very fair and, you know, which are very upfront, I think like uh, just the fact that there are so many people and complexity, I think there is definitely an aspect of, managing expectations, managing politics, you know, managing messaging, um, you know, managing the overall sort of uh, uh, scope of expectations, if you may, right? And so those become much larger pieces of the puzzle. And as a leader, as a manager, if you're able to do that effectively, right, and keep multiple sets of people happy and, you know, keep the rhythm and grow, then I think, yeah, that's, that's success in the larger enterprise. Yeah. And I think also uh, maybe we, we could add transparency as well, right? Like, Indeed. Uh, and and the culture because we discussed this also uh and in in one episode that i think this is one of the most uh, have uh, i would say especially when you go from what you mentioned the zero to one to you know the growing phase uh, later on now uh you mentioned a lot of the startups right that that you were part uh, in like nutanix elemental medallia stack rocks um which one you can say it really reshape the way you know you you used you used to look at and you felt you know like it was really a life-changing moment for you i think each one of them did in a way so uh, they all had different impacts i mean just to go back and just highlight a bit i think you know when when i became part of nutanix i mean i uh, was an individual contributor really you know when i started out they were a small team they were quite literally three people in a room type of a company you know they were a very small company it was still a concept just emerging uh, with the initial product and uh, the founders were extremely smart you know they are some of the smartest people here in silicon valley and i think uh, i definitely learned a lot uh, in terms of grit and in terms of focus and in terms of you know how to uh, build a company right so that was definitely learnings that i took away from the experience I really loved it. I think like even today, some of the stuff that I try to apply in my day-to-day -day is uh, certainly things that I learned, uh, you know, over 10 years back now, you know, in that journey at Nutanix, right? Which uh, uh, certainly started laying the foundations for who I ended up becoming, right? And then when I went to Elementum, I think Elementum was a very different story. You know, I was responsible to drive all of engineering. Um, Elementum, I honestly learned a lot about hiring. I think, you know, it was about org building, hiring the best talent. That was my primary focus. I mean, I did a bunch of other things, you know, obviously architecture, product strategy, company strategy, and the ups and downs that happen with a startup on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think one of my biggest learning experiences there was, you know, just attracting, um, uh, especially like sort of, you know, tier one talent, right, in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. which is always very difficult to attract because, uh, those are the ones that are not looking. Those are the ones that have most amount of choices, you know, and those are the ones that you want to hire, right? And those are the ones everybody else also wants to hire. So it's a very right. tricky one, right? You're almost like doing storytelling and concept selling morning to evening to convince them to join your journey, right? So <laughs> I think I certainly learned a lot of that uh, from there. And it was very rewarding. I also loved it. Again, the leadership there, the other people there. It was an incredibly talented team. 
And, you know, again, I think there was a lot of learning all around, right? Now, from Medallia's standpoint, I think there were multiple things in Medallia that definitely shaped me. I love that company. You know, I think I made also a ton of great friends there, just like I did in other places as well prior to that and even before all the startup journeys. But Medallia really, in some sense to me, was an eye-opener, right? And what I mean by eye-opener was uh, most companies that I had been in till then or my understanding of startup was always about, um, yeah, you build some cool, awesome tech, then you find your early customers, you know, then you build a formidable company and, you know, then you become big and large and, you know, then you go public, right? Like that was my sort of mental model for a startup. Um, when I came to Medallia, I was very impressed by the fact that the founders had really bootstrapped the company for the first many years. And they were in fact profitable, right? And they were very close to the customers. They understood the problem really well. They had very close relationship with their customers. Mm-hmm. And the customers really loved them. They were in love with the, the, the team, the product. You know, they, they really doted on them, right? And the task when I had entered in their journey, it was all about scaling them to the enterprise level and beyond, right? And um, I think what I really saw was the story was in some sense flipped. In, you know, most other startups, the story was, let's build an awesome product, then we'll find customers. And here it was more like, hey, we have customers who love the product because we give value, even if it's not, you know, as scalable or as tech savvy in the beginning, but we can add more capabilities on top of it so that it can become really where it should go, right? So a lot of innovation in Medallia really happened thanks to the customers. It was really based very closely working with customers, it was always a very customer-first company, right? Like in some sense, like what we talk about Amazon being a customer-first company, I think mm-hmm. Medallia kind of lived that same dream, right? So it certainly like influenced me in a big way, right? And I, since then, you know, I always thought so, just having done prior things also in my life, but I think that was like the reinforcement, right? Like if you're building a business, it's all about customers. Everything else comes second, right? So 100%. Definitely work with them, right? So I think that was reinforced there. And then last but not the least, StackRox again was a very interesting journey. With StackRox, my biggest learning was StackRox was in some sense, uh, you know, um, again, in a space, it was a security company, you know, um, and I think we were, again, among the first few companies in that space, container security or, you know, what we have today, obviously WPP, CNAP, and all these good acronyms didn't exist back in the day, right? And so I think at that point in time, we were investing a lot of energy educating our customers as much as, you know, providing a solution to them, right? And uh, that wasn't easy, but I think we had the grit and we had the tenacity and we had the confidence in us, right? And I think that that dream and tenacity and confidence, again, of the founders, of the leaders out there, of the engineers out there, I think certainly was something that, you know, again, reinforced my belief in the fact that if you're really after solving a certain problem, if you really believe in a certain kind of a company, nothing should stop you, right? Like, there's no reason for you to at least doubt yourself. And if you're doubting yourself, well, then, you know, that's fine, but then you should step back and figure out what is it that you want to double down on, right? Like, what is it that you want to rally behind? So, so I think that way I kind of learned and picked up everything all along the way. And, you know, beyond that, also even the companies that I've advised or invested in or played some part in, and there've been quite a few of those also in Silicon Valley. I think like every interaction, every day, in fact, even today's, every conversation teaches me something. Like I'm, I almost feel like every conversation I walk into, you know, including today's, I walk in with the expectation um, that, hey, I'm going to pick up something, some new nuggets that hopefully I can experiment, try and learn from. Nice. I know, Shashank, you are also an advisor, right? And uh, for, for many other startups. And if if I am, you know, someone who just 
you know, came out of college or I decided to drop out. I don't know because this is <laughs> what happened usually in the Valley. Um, and I want, you know, to, to take the path. Should I start, you know, as an engineer, go all up the rank, then become maybe a CTO one day and then find an idea, try to build it? Or should I go with the shortcut, trying to find an idea and build it today? Which which one is is more uh, suitable for someone who might be now listening or watching this? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's again you know boils it down to individual choice, right? There's no right or wrong answer there. Right. Um, the way I, the way I think about this is you know, and again I'll give you my perspective, right? It's not a right or wrong perspective, but my perspective. I feel like you know we we as a society tend to. Um, get over biased and attach more weights to the winners, right? Like that's how we as a society are, right? And right. Um, and as a society, we are also, and it's a good thing that we are optimistic, but we also tend to lean on the fact that, hey, there's going to be one out of 10 winners, that one is me, right? And, the, uh, you know, so therefore I should just go with exactly what the winners do, right? Um, on the other hand, the reality, which I think really plays out much better in my opinion is, uh, a place where you allow yourself the right kind of preparation, if you may, or the right kind of preparedness uh, for you to go play the game, right? Like going back to my analogy of sort of team sport, I do feel that I think um, getting into uh, a startup mode is is very similar to getting into starting a career in music or trying to go become a professional athlete or, you know, or trying to go get into a creative skill. And why I say that is because, you know, it has an element of risk. It has an element of, you know, freedom. It has an element of um, innovation and idea that is going to drive that, right? And you have to uniquely stand out on your own. So there I feel like I think what really helps, at least in the world of entrepreneurship, is it's better to try by, right? So if you can and if you end up becoming an early engineer in a startup, right? Like, for example, if startup is your calling and you've just graduated from college today, well, the best choice could be go join a startup. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. what would that do for you is it would do two or three things. One, you would get a first hand flavor. You're not reading in a TechCrunch article or reading in the books what a startup is like, but now you're part of a journey, right? You're experiencing it every day, right? And you can decide for yourself is that what you want to sign up for, right? So the, the territory, the game becomes a little more familiar, right? So that's one thing. Uh, secondly, as I, you know, always kind of very firmly believe that, you know, especially those employees who join in the zero to one journeys, right? Like the, the early employees who are the young early employees, um, they basically end up becoming future leaders, future founders, right? And many of these guys have found those that the first startup really to be the training ground. Like it's a very fertile training ground for future founders, future CEOs, right? Now, I've, I've had some of that experience myself. And, you know, there are many stories like that in Silicon Valley. You know, the first engineer or the 10th employee or, you know, something like that going yeah. in and starting the next company and in fact becoming bigger than the startup that they were part of, right? And so I think like there's certainly an element of kind of learning and growing with it, right? So, so I certainly encourage that. Um, the, the other part that I do want to mention is that, uh, you know, I understand that, you know, folklore and just overall romanticism has uh, projected this whole idea of, you know, dropping out of college and doing a startup and becoming... Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, one of those has become the, the legend of the story, right? Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg's of the world um, or Steve Jobs, right? Like these guys have become, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, God level figures, right? In Silicon Valley. But I think for every of those uh, 
massive, humongous, big figures. There are equal number of people who have actually spent a lot of time getting trained, finding their rhythm, you know, finding their place, right? And there are enough people who have gone to college or worked for the companies, you know, and then learned the things that they wanted to be prepared for before they jumped in, right? And so I would lean on that, you know, find your calling. Don't just follow it for the sake of, you know, because it's fashionable to do. Uh, it's better to spend time learning. It's better to spend time building your confidence. It's better to spend time, you know, being ready for the game. You know, go play the yeah. game. Go to play the game with confidence. But, you know, go play the game with confidence once you've practiced hard enough, right? Like, you know, feel confident you're going to go win the game. Yeah. And I think they would understand more how to find or spot problems and how to go speak to customers later on, right? Absolutely. I think like those are the, in fact, three things I would say very quickly on that. Customers, like most first time people don't have a sense of customers. Once you work somewhere, you understand multiple things about customers, including customer success, keeping them happy, you know, trying to attract them, all that good stuff, right? And you like you also said, all the problems, right? All the problems become familiar. You almost have a, have a sense for it now. You understand you may not be able to solve it necessarily, but at least you have a sense of how bad can the problem get. And in a and in a funny way, I think the roller coaster of an early stage startup kind of makes you more even keel. Mm -hmm. And that has definitely happened for me also. You know, even as an experienced person over the years, uh, I think the more startups you go through, the more you kind of take it in the stride. You realize that, hey, I'm gonna start my morning feeling all jubilant and top of the world. And by lunch, I might feel like the world is coming to an end. And you know, I might close <laughs> my day feeling, yeah, everything is all all good. Right. And that roller coaster of emotional ride essentially is something that you need to get comfortable with. Yeah, it's it's great insight, I would say. Um, Shashank, as we are coming to the end, I have a very famous question. Um, what is the question you wish that I ask you? Well, that's that's an interesting one. I haven't had this before in a <laughs> podcast. It's really a fun one. I love that. Uh well, I would say, I think, you know, one thing I like to share, so I'll ask, maybe you can sure. ask me that question is like, you know, how, what, what does success look like for me? You know, success is something that as society, we celebrate a lot. What does it really mean? Right. And what does it look like uh, for you? So I think, you know, that's something I would love to ask you also. In fact, counter, if you're willing to share and I'd love to share my sure. two cents on it. Yeah. Share yours first and then I will tell you. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, Absolutely. So I feel like, you know, over the years, as I've been also, you know, uh, growing older and gathering more experience, um, I have mulled over a lot about this whole concept of success. What exactly is success, right? And uh, what is it that we are targeting? And success, of course, at every level, right? Success, especially at the corporate level that we're talking about, success at an individual level, success at a family level, success at a society level. Um, I do think, and it is something I mulled over quite a bit, uh, that I think we overattach importance to the reward. I think, you know, success for the most part has become synonymous with reward, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I feel the success really is about great journeys, right? And this is something that I have learned with my own experience. Now, of course, if you get the reward at the end of the journey, you know, it's of course exciting and, you know, it's kind of in some sense, you know, checks the final box. But I do feel that I think a lot more excitement, a lot more satisfaction, a lot more success, uh, so to speak, right? At multiple levels, your growth, your happiness, your satisfaction, your learning, um, you know, and your overall sort of attachment to things and, you know, your your desire to do well in it. 
uh, all of that is really more a function of journey, right? And so if you're having an enjoyable, good journey, I think that's success, right? Like you want to do more of it, you know, you you kind of get intoxicated by it in some sense, in a positive way, right? And uh, if the journey is painful, right? And if the journey is not, and when I say painful, not in the sense of challenging and helping you grow, but painful in terms of pulling you back, painful in terms of, you know, being very conflicting with your ideas or your ethics or your moral compass or any of any of the other things, right? That could be confusing. I think the reward, honestly, even if it appears successful, uh, is not success, you know, at least in my opinion. I feel like it's actually very painful and it, it's a downer, right? So again, sort of in simple words, I think the journey is the reward, uh, not the reward itself, right? The end of it. And that I think I have concluded more so uh, of course, I want to succeed in terms of the reward as well, even today in my journey. But, you know, I think the journey right. is what I'm enjoying every day, right? So, 100%. So, my answer would not be very different than yours, Shashank. And maybe I'm sharing this the first time, but which is fine. But I, I repeat something and maybe the audience would know by now. For me, actually, it's always success. I always, maybe like a little bit uh, too much optimism, but this is the way I think. Because for me, there is nothing called failure. There is always learning. So, uh, of course, there are some emotions that comes and you feel, hey, like today I tried to do this, but I was not able to do. Or maybe I tried to do something, but I figured out that I was going the wrong way. Okay, fine. So I say I didn't. Actually, I succeeded to know that this way doesn't work. Right. So this is the way I look at it. Of course, but success can be measured. Also, some people, as you said, they measure by how much money you make. Uh, some people, they measure like uh, how many friends you have, how much activities you are enrolled into. For me, like, of course, like these are small elements that it's like the top of the iceberg, I would say, because success really is about, for me at least, by the end of the day, if I figure out that I learned something new, this is a huge success for me. Like for me, I, I feel fulfilled. I learned something new or I help someone, this is for me the success. Of course, like, uh, I'm not too much, uh, I would say, uh, uh, going into the Zen philosophy or something. No, of course, we are living in reality. We need all to make money. And of course, if I make money, I will also be successful. But yeah, like, I, I like to see the things into a positive way. I like always to, I tell everyone, I don't have the word failure in my dictionary. I removed it years back. I say, I did mistake. Tomorrow, I will not do it again. I succeeded to avoid this mistake from now on. So this is how I do it. Um, how inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah, thank, thanks, yeah. thank you, Shajan. Well, really, I enjoyed the discussion. I really enjoyed your deep, detailed answers. And, you know, I believe, you know, a lot of uh, the force, whether when we covered a little bit about the tech part or when we covered the startup part. And by the way, the book that uh, Shashank mentioned, whether you agree with the author or not, <laughs> read, read the book, Zero to One. It's a must-read book for anyone, not only if you are planning to have a startup, but I read it myself. I didn't agree with every single thing that uh, uh, Peter sa says there. Um, he, he goes a little bit like uh, people would say, he's uh, how you say this word. Uh, yeah, like he said, you should go and do a monopoly for whatever you are trying right, to do. Right, so, so, believer of monopoly. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't so, agree so, with all these ideas either, but it's an interesting book. I would yeah, but but his point actually, and this is why I'm saying because I'm focusing now on startups and all these things nowadays. Because if you need to start a company that can last long, go 
somewhere where really you can be the zero to one, like where there's no much people around you. If if you go now and you tell me, hey, Mehmet, like I'm going to start a uh, storage company. Uh, we're going to have uh, disks and this and fast. I will tell you, you're playing in a red ocean. You should go play in a blue ocean. So <laughs> anyway, so so ad- this is one of the books. Maybe I'll do one episode just about books one day. Shashank, thank you very much. You stayed like a little bit late for you at this time. I really appreciate the time. And for the audience, as usual, if you are watching this, please let us know what you think. Subscribe to the channel. We are having a lineup of uh, more guests also as well. Summertime, I think I will not be stopping. So keep watching this space. If you are listening using your favorite podcasting platform, also, if it's your first time, just subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned. Don't forget. Tell your friends, colleagues, and family. We are trying to get the best of the best here in educational and fun manner, as you have seen today. So keep tuned for more episodes. And until we meet in the next episode, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Mehmet. Well, my pleasure. Hit that subscribe button. Share the show with your tech-savvy friends and fellow entrepreneurs. And leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Your support means the world to us. 